Welcome back, Hemming Brains, to the Buttonbrooks Thomas Mann Part 2 Chapter 4 podcast. The elders, both gone, in one chapter. In one go. Will we perhaps see more of Gotthold now? Swim said the mummerfish, he said, this chapter left me conflicted. On the one hand, Gotthold comes across as money-grubbing, but on the other hand, Senior treated him abominably. Also, on one hand, giving Gotthold money may hurt the firm, perhaps fatally, but Junior's it's-just-business dismissal seems facile. He, appearing neat and comprehensive only by ignoring the true complexities of an issue, superficial. So there's this phrase, it's not personal, it's business. This phrase is poppycock. I've never used it, but I've heard it a few times as justifications for repugnant actions. Yeah, it is a bit of a cop-out, isn't it? That's what we call that, the old cop-out. It's uh, it's not personal, it's just business means I don't care about you, I got what I want. Pretty much. Railing, Rail jinxing about says, maybe that's why Gotthold decided to accept his inheritance and liquidise his own accents, assets so suddenly. He got to think about how his own stubbornness, regardless of what his father did, just led to more unhappiness. As for why he decided to give up his own business, I think he either realised in the face of life's fragility that he had other priorities, or that business-mindedness had driven a wedge between him and his family and wasn't worth it. Could be either way. Alright. Here we go, let's get the next chapter up here. Chapter 5 goes like this. It grieved the console sorely that the grandfather had not lived to see the entry of his grandson into the business, an event which took place at Easter time the same year. Thomas had left school at 16. He was grown strong and sturdy, and his manly clothes made him look still older. He had been confirmed, and Pastor Colling, in stentorian tones, had enjoined upon him to practice the virtues of moderation. A gold chain bequeathed him by his grandfather now hung about his neck with the family arms on a medallion at the end. A rather dismal design, showing on an irregularly hatched surface a flat stretch of marshy country with one solitary leafless willow tree. The old seal ring with the green stone, once worn in all probability by the well-to-do tailor in Rostock, had descended to the console together with the great Bible. Thomas's likeness to his grandfather was as strong as Christian's to his father. The firm round chin was the old man's and the straight well-chiselled nose. Thomas wore his hair parted on one side and it reached in two bays from his narrow veined temples. His eyelashes, one of which had been a habit of lifting expressively. What? Ah, I missed the line. Let me go again. His eyelashes were colourless by contrast, and so were the eyebrows, one of which had a habit of lifting expressively. His speech, his movements, even his laugh, which showed his rather defective teeth, were all quiet and adequate. He already looked forward seriously and eagerly to his career. It was indeed a solemn moment when, after early breakfast, the console led him down into the office and introduced him to Herr Marcus, the confidential clerk, Herr... Haverman, the cashier, and the rest of the staff, with all of whom, naturally, he had long been on the best of terms. For the first time, he sat at his desk in his own revolving chair, absorbed 
in copying, stamping and arranging papers. In the afternoon, his father took him through the magazines on the Trave, each one of which had a special name like the Linden, the Oak, the Lion, the Whale. Tom was thoroughly at home in every one of them, of course, but now, for the first time, he entered them to be formally introduced as a fellow worker. He entered upon his task with devotion, imitating the quiet, tenacious industry of his father, who was working with his jaws set and writing down many a prayer for help in his private diary. The consul had set himself the task of making good the sums paid out by the firm on the occasion of his father's death. It was a conception... An ideal, he explained the position quite fully to his wife late one evening in the landscape room. It was half past eleven and Mamselle Jungman and the children were already asleep in the corridor rooms. No one slept in the second story now, it was empty save for an occasional guest. The Frau Consul sat on the yellow sofa beside her husband and her and he, cigar in mouth, was reading the financial columns of the local paper. She bent over her embroidery, moving her lips as she counted a row of stitches with her needle. Six candles burned in a candelabrum on the slender sewing table beside her, and the chandelier was unlighted. Johann Buddenbrook was nearing the middle forties, and had visibly altered in the last years. His little round eyes seemed to have sunk deeper in his head. His cheekbones and his large aquiline nose stood out more prominently than ever and the ash-blonde hair seemed to have been just touched with a power, a powder puff where it parted on the temples. The Frau Consul was at the end of her thirties, but while never beautiful, it was brilliant as ever. Her dead-white skin, with a single freckle here and there, had lost none of its splendour, and the candlelight shone on the rich red-blonde hair that was as wonderfully dressed as ever, giving her husband a sidelong glance, with her cleat blue eyes, she said, Jean, I wanted to ask you to consider something, if it would not perhaps be advisable to engage a manservant. I have just been coming to that conclusion when I think of my parent. The consul let his paper drop on his knee and took his cigar out of his mouth. A shrewd look came into his eyes. Here was a question of money to be paid out. My dear Betsy, he said, and he spoke as deliberately as possible to gain time to muster his excuses. Do you think we need a manservant? Since my parents' death, we have kept all on, all three maids, not counting Mademoiselle Jungman. It seems to me. Oh, but the house is so big, Jean. We can hardly get along as it is. I, I say to Lean, Lean, it's a fearfully long time since the rooms in the annex were dusted, but I don't like to drive the girls too hard. They have their work cut out to them to keep everything clean and tidy here in the front. And a manservant would be so useful for errands and so on. We could find some honest man from the country who wouldn't expect much. Oh, before I forget, Louise, Louise Mollendorf is letting her and Anton go. I've seen him serve nicely at table. To tell you the truth, said the console, and shuffled about a little uneasily, it is a new idea to me. We aren't either entertaining or going out just now. No, but we have visitors very often, for which I am not responsible, Jean, as you know, though I, of course, am always glad to see them. You have a business friend from somewhere and you invite him to dinner. Then he has not taken a room at a hotel, so we asked him to stop for the night. A missionary comes and stops the week with us. 
week after next, Pastor Matthias is coming from Kastart, and the wages amount to so little. But they mount up, Betsy, we have four people here in the house, and think of the payroll the firm has. So we really can't afford a manservant, the Frau Consul asked. She smiled as she spoke and looked at her husband with her head on one side. When I think of all the servants my father and mother had. My dear Betsy, your parents, I really must ask you if you understand our financial position. No, Jean, I must admit I do not. I'm afraid I have only a vague idea. Well, I can tell you in a few words, the consul said. He sat up straight on the sofa, the one knee crossed over the other, puffed at his cigar, knit his brows a little, and marshalled his figures with wonderful fluency. To put it briefly, my father had, before my sister's marriage, around sum of 900,000 marks net, not counting, of course, real estate and the stock and goodwill of the firm. 80,000 went to Frankfurt as dowry, and 100,000 to set Gotthold up in business. That leaves 720,000, the price of this house reckoning off what we got for the little one in Alf Street, and counting all the improvements and new furnishings came to a good 100,000. That brings it down to 620,000. 25,000 to Frankfurt as compensation on the house leaves 595,000, which is what we should have at the father's death, if we hadn't partly made up for all these expenses through the years by a profit of some 200,000 marks current. The entire capital amounted to 795,000 marks, of which another 100,000 went to Gotthold, and a few thousand marks for the minor legacies the father left to the Holy Ghost Hospital, the fund for tradesmen's widows, and so on. That brings us down to around 420,000, or another 100,000 with your own dowry. There is the position in round figures, aside from the small fluctuations in the capital. You see, my dear Betsy, we are not rich... And while the capital has grown smaller, the running expenses have not. For the whole business is established on a certain scale, which it costs about so much to maintain. Have you followed me? The consul's wife, her needlework in her lap, nodded with some hesitation. Quite so, my dear Jean, she said. Though she was far from having understood everything, least of all what these big figures had to do with her engaging a manservant. The consul puffed at his cigar till it glowed, then threw back his head and blew out the smoke, and then went on. You're thinking, of course, that when Gotthold calls your dear parents unto himself, we shall have a considerable sum to look forward to. And so we shall, but we must not reckon too blindly on it. Your father has just... Your father has had some heavy losses due, we all know, to your brother Justus. Justice is certainly a charming personality, but business is not his strong point. And he has had bad luck, too. According to all accounts, he has had to pay up pretty heavily, and transactions with bankers make dear money. Your father has come to the rescue several times to prevent a smash. That sort of thing may happen again, to speak frankly. I'm afraid it will. You'll forgive me, Betsy, for my plain speaking, but you know that the style of living which is so proper and pleasing in your father is not at all suitable for a businessman. Your father was nothing to do with business any more, but just as you know what I mean. He isn't very careful, is he? His ideas are too large, he is too impulsive, and your parents aren't saving anything. They live a lordly life, as the circumstances permit them to. The Frau Consul smiled forbearingly, she well knew her husband's opinion of their luxurious Kroger tastes.
That's all, he said, and put his cigar into the ash receiver. As far as I'm concerned, I live in the hope that God will preserve my powers unimpaired, and that by his gracious help I may succeed in re-establishing the firm on its old basis. I hope you see the thing more clearly now, Betsy. Quite, quite, my dear Jean, the Frau Consul hastened to reply, for she had given up the manservant for the evening. Shall we go to bed? It is very late. A few days later, when the Consul came in to dinner, in an unusually good mood, they decided at the table to engage the Mollendorf's Anton. There we go. The lady of the house obviously had the final say on that one, despite his large list of expenses and his large kind of um, uh, speech about all the places his money uh, is going to. And then in the end, they got the manservant anyway. Um, Alright, have your say about that one on the subreddit. I'm going to go to bed. See you tomorrow.